Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight for 51 Bets. Um, I'm Melanie Brensinger. I'm one of the co-founders of Anagenesis Capital Partners, and I have two of my colleagues here with me as well, uh, Brian and Itche. And Brian uh, was a senior associate and last week was promoted to vice president at our firm. And Eche uh, is an intern for us. She's in her second term of an internship here, and she currently is at Stanford University. And I'll allow each of them to give their background as well, but we're excited to be here. We're also excited to be uh, here with our co-host, Greg from Windjammer uh, as well. And Greg, feel free to jump in uh, with any insights and feedback for us from a private equity perspective. Um, in terms of my background, um, I've been in the financing space for 20 plus years, um, always focused in on working with private equity firms around uh, debt and equity financing to support uh, what they're doing uh, at their respective firms. Uh, I was at G Capital and the healthcare financial services team for about nine years before co-founding Anagenesis Capital. Uh, really focused in on the healthcare space. During that time, I deployed over $2 billion of capital for that platform and um, did 50 plus deals with them. So very deep uh, in the healthcare space, founded uh, Anagenesis in 2015 with my partner. Went out, we raised uh, a fund, which we're now deploying, built out our team and we're 100% um, focused on healthcare. So excited to be here this evening. And I'm really fortunate again to be here with Eche um, and Brian. They've done a really nice job of pulling together a deck for you, which we're gonna walk through. And um, you're going to be able to hear insights from them through the eyes of a vice president as well as a current intern. And hopefully that'll be helpful for you. We want this to be interactive. We want you guys to ask questions as we go along the way. But perhaps before we kick it off into the slides, I'll turn it over to Brian and Eche for you to each um, talk about your background and, and uh, what you do at Anagenesis. And then we'll, we'll flip into the slides. Yeah, Brian Choi here. Um... Excited to be here um, and be part of this 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 this, this, this discussion. Um, you know, um, so just just on my background, yeah. So I, I joined Anagenesis about um, you know eight eight months ago now, back in May of last year. Um, before that, I I spent my time at um, Capital One Healthcare, uh, GE Capital Healthcare platform, um, along with Melanie. Um, as well as um, my other um, colleague, Scott Clark, um, and then sort of worked on the similar sort of debt underwriting and portfolio management, um, and then been in that industry for about seven years, again, focusing on the healthcare deals only. Um, and then, you know, Scott and Melanie kind of brought me over to this platform, um, again, earlier in the last year, um, and then, and, you know, have joined this, um, you know, great platform and then been working on um, you know, working on deals ever since. So, I mean, again, thanks for um, having me in this conversation and this, in the discussions. Um, and you know, and looking forward to uh, getting to know you guys more and then just you know um, having this dialogue. Great, thanks, Brian. Hey, Jay, you want to give your background? Yeah, sure. Um, hello, everyone. Nice to meet you all. Uh, I'm a junior at Stanford University, majoring in mathematics and computer science, and minoring in economics. I'm, I'm a research assistant at Stanford's Digital Economy Lab, which is part of the Institute of Human-Centered AI. And as Melanie said, I've been an intern at Anagenesis last summer and this winter, and I really enjoyed my experience so far. 
Great, thank you. And and Greg, since you might um, interject with some thoughts, which I hope you do, would you mind giving it just a brief introduction for yourself as well as my co-host? Uh, I, Greg Bondick with Windjammer Capital. I've been uh, uh, kind of a founding person for our East Coast office, but I've been running the firm now for a couple of years with a couple of my partners. So um, we have about an $875 million fund right now and um, excited to be here and excited to, to listen to, to this today. I'm sure it will be fantastic. So, but if there's any, any questions as it relates to PE, I'm happy to jump in. Great, thank you. Uh, with that, Jordan, I'm gonna share my screen so we can jump into the slides. Um, in terms of an agenda, if you look here, um, I'll chat a little bit about, we touched on it a bit, but who we are, um, what our firm does, and then we'll touch in a little bit about different ways um, companies find financing sources. Sometimes people um, think, gosh, back in the day, everyone would go to banks for financing. Um, and now there's this evolution of private credit funds out there and a whole host of different types of private credit funds. So we'll touch on a little bit of that. Talk about how private equity plays into the financing sources as founders think about uh, getting capital for their businesses. Then we'll walk through our investment process, focus on our diligence process. Brian will walk through how we look at deals, how we think about deals. We'll walk through um, just our whole way that we, what we transact as a firm. And then we'll touch on a little bit around origination and sourcing deals. Uh, Brian will walk through an example of our pipeline of deals that we're looking at, how we track our pipeline, what our hit rate is within our pipeline. And then we'll do a deep dive into a case study of a deal that Brian and I closed on uh, late last year uh, called Project Lighthouse. And we'll talk on, touch on all the different aspects of that deal. And then we thought it'd be really helpful for Brian to walk through kind of key skills in which are required at the senior associate VP level through his perspective. And then we have tips from an intern and HA will walk through um, as an intern, some things that she does to be really successful within her internship. Feel free along the way to stop us with any questions or thoughts or comments that you have. And and um, Greg, also, when we touch into the financing sources and touch into the private equity too, feel free to jump in and provide feedback there as well. So with that, just turning forward to our firm, as I mentioned uh, from the onset from my introduction, we are a healthcare-focused private credit firm. We uh, were founded in 2015. We're raising, uh, we raised our fund one, which is a $274 million SBIC fund. We're current, currently deploying that fund. We have um, a portfolio at this point of 10 portfolio companies, one of which we exited. Brian, I'll touch on some of the companies that we're involved in so you can get a sense of our portfolio. But this slide just really lays out, we have a differentiated investment strategy because we are 100% healthcare focused. We think healthcare is a, a good sector to be in. It's growing, it's, it's you know non-cyclical in nature. Obviously, as you guys see from the current pandemic, um, if you look even at our portfolio through COVID, it um, held on and remains quite strong as many of our businesses were considered essential businesses as you might imagine through the pandemic. And we have deep relationships with executives, founders, investment banks, um, really across the board from a healthcare perspective. We have an executive advisory board um, that is made up of executives in the healthcare um, 
industry and they help with us with diligence. They're an investor in our fund and um, just are great people to have around our organization. From an investment perspective, we invest in companies with ideally greater than $2 million of EBITDA, but we are truly in the lower middle market. So kind of $2 million of EBITDA and up from there. Um, essentially on the higher end, so around 15 million of EBITDA. We are um, first and foremost a private credit fund, which means that, for example, if we're deploying $10 million of capital, 8 million would be in um, some type of debt instrument and 20, like 2 million would be in some type of equity co-investment. So we typically take an 80-20 split. Uh, sometimes that can change depending on the deal, but that's our ideal uh, metric between debt and equity. We don't do control equity deals. So we are truly taking minority positions either alongside of a sponsor or alongside of founders of businesses. We do, um, as I mentioned, back private equity firms, but we also back uh, direct founders that where a private equity firm is not involved. For our fund, we're targeting you know, 12 to 18 investments per fund with around 10 to $25 million per transaction. And sometimes we are the only debt provider or um, at times we may partner up with other debt providers. And then for all of our deals, we have some level of board participation. From a structuring perspective and return perspective, we do everything from senior debt to junior debt on the equity side, we can do preferred debt. We can do, sorry, preferred equity. We can do common equity. The key of, of our firm when we came together, we wanted to be healthcare focused, but we also wanted to be able to provide flexible solutions for borrowers. There's a lot of mezzanine funds out there. There's a lot of senior debt out there. There's a lot of private equity, but we didn't see any other uh, fund or any other vehicle which uh, was healthcare focused that could play up and down the capital structure and really provide flexible solutions for our borrowers. And that's a real competitive advantage as we look to source deals. Uh, in terms of uh, our interest rates and how we think about providing returns to our investors, our debt instruments have um, interest that's returned to our investors, of course. And then our equity piece provides capital appreciation, typical, similar to like a private equity firm, they're you know, on, a, on a, some type of event or a sale of a company that return then um, goes back to our investors as well. And as I mentioned, we're an SBIC fund. So essentially what that means is we're governed by um, the small business administrations, we're licensed through them. And um, they're really focused on providing um, financing back to small businesses across the United States. So there are some governors around size of companies that we can look at. And they're also really focused on serving underserved areas of the country as well as underserved populations. So we're really excited about that because it fits within our culture and our values for our firm. So if no one has any questions on that, I'll, I'll flip to the next slide, which is really around thinking about, oh, sorry, before I do that, Brian, um, do you want to just touch on our portfolio and maybe um, give the guys some color around what type of businesses we're invested in so they can get a general sense of what we think about when we think about healthcare? Yeah, yeah, have, have it too. Um, by the way, can you guys hear me okay now? Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. Um, yeah, just to kind of briefly touch on our portfolio today, um, we have nine active companies in our portfolio. Um, we do have a lot of physician practices platform in our portfolio. Um, and what that really means is that it, it's a roll-up, basically, right? Roll-up of 20 to 30 different practices. Um, you know, we have a portfolio company platform that provides dental services. 
Um, we have a platform for ophthalmology, podiatrists. Um, we also have a company that provides the treatments and care for people at home. Um, this one's not necessarily a, a roll-up play, but regardless, a platform. Um, and then we also have a behavior health company that we'll actually talk about later in the case study. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different subsectors within healthcare, as you can imagine. Um, healthcare is very wide. Um, you know, it goes from healthcare device manufacturing to pharmaceuticals, uh, to healthcare IT and to physician practices. Um, so a lot of a lot of opportunities within healthcare, um, and we do look across the verticals, um, and then that's why we like to specialize in this um, specific industry as well. Guys, uh, can you clarify what is a platform? What is a add-on? What is a roll-up? Just some of the vocabulary. Yeah, so platform is basically when you first acquire an asset, you know. Um, whether it be a private equity buyer or even even for us when we first look to invest in a in a platform it, it's an established i would say it's an established um you know set of practices whether it has you know already five or ten practices in it with some sort of infrastructure as a setup so that you're sort of um what you're looking to do is it go out and, and add you know add on you know might like a small mom and pop providers into the existing platform so that's like the platform um and then the role play uh, that we see quite a lot in, in, in private equity as well as private debt. Um, so that, that's how we think about the platform. Awesome. And, and maybe the add-on, add Jordan, is like taking that existing platform and just doing acquisitions to continue to enhance and grow the platform. Okay. And maybe you could save this for later, but dive it into some basic differences between like what is mezzanine debt from a high level, um, senior, mm -hmm. junior, what is that from just a high level? And we can come back maybe into that later. Yeah, sure, and, and Jordan, I'll touch on that a little bit on this slide that I'm, I'm on right now around private credit, traditional banks and private equity. So um, to make it very basic, and I apologize if this is a very basic level, but um, one example that I like to give is, for example, if you're going to buy a house, um, you would go to, let's use Wells Fargo, for example, and they would say, okay, you're about to buy a house, we want you to put in, you know, 20% down of your own money, and we're going to give you 80%. And with that, that's going to be the purchase price of your home. So if you think about the thesis, you know, Wells Fargo wants you to do that. So you're also invested in your home, so that, um, you know, you have quote, unquote, skin in the game. And so if you do that, Wells Fargo will then have essentially a first lien on your home through that first lien mortgage. Now, say, for example, you know, you own your home for three years and you say, gosh, I want to take, you know, some more money out of my home. Um, the, the value of the home has increased and therefore I want to take what's known as a second lien mortgage or a second on your home. So that second lien mortgage might be at a higher rate. It will be at a higher rate than whatever, for example, Wells Fargo gave you. It'll give you some more money in your pocket. Um, they, in, in, if the company, if the um, if the, you wanted to sell your house, for example, and your house was sold for a million dollars, the first piece of that would go to pay off your first lien mortgage. The second amount would be to go pay off your second lien mortgage. And then the money would be returned to you for whatever was left. And that way that you think about a mortgage is very similar to capital structures within any given deal. So if you think about senior debt, senior debt is like at the top priority of that structure. So in my example with the mortgage, senior debt would be equivalent to like Wells Fargo's 
first lien mortgage that you would have on your house. It's the first debt that gets taken out um, on a repayment. They have the highest priority, the highest claim to whatever the assets are, the cash flow, the enterprise value is for the company. And they are the most secured because they are the most secure and highest in the structure. They're also typically the cheapest cost of capital. Um, next, underneath senior debt, you have, and, and senior debt can take a different forms. It can be a revolver, which is essentially like a line of credit. You borrow, you pay down, you, you, know, you borrow again, you pay down. Think about that like a, a line of credit or a credit card or something of that nature. It's, it's just rolling and you pay down, borrow again. Then you have term debt within senior, which is long-term debt, meaning you borrow that amount of money up front and then you pay it back over time. Sometimes you're paying it back every year, every quarter. Sometimes you don't pay it back until the end of maturity and you pay the whole thing at one time. That's really senior debt. And that senior debt can be provided by traditional banks. So think about you know, Chase, Wells Fargo, all the Capital One. Um, all the major banks out there, uh, regional banks also provide senior debt and everybody has different kind of sweet spots of where they play in that. Then underneath the senior debt is junior debt and junior debt can be different forms. You'll hear people say mezzanine, second lien, last out. It's all these different words, but really what it means is it sits behind somebody else in a repayment structure. So whoever sits on top of them is getting paid first Whoever sits on top of them has the best terms from a security perspective and, and just protection of principal um, for the money they've provided. And then the junior people sit behind them. So for sitting behind somebody else, they get paid more money. So that usually translates into a higher interest rate uh, before sitting behind the senior debt. And then behind those two tranches are the equity. And the equity can take many different forms. It can be preferred equity, which means it's at the top of that stack in terms of repayment. It can be common equity, which sits right behind preferred equity, or it could be both of those. Some, some structures have preferred equity and common equity. That equity can be held by management teams. It can be held by founders of the firm. It can be held by private equity firms like Greg and, and folks like that. Um, and it can also be held by folks like ourselves that are our debt investors, but also doing some equity alongside whoever's controlling those businesses. So that's how to think about in general, a capital structure and how all of this fits together. So on this slide, we really just wanted to make some distinctions here around, as you see, traditional banks are typically providing senior debt. They might have a junior debt option below them. They rarely do equity. They're really, the major concern is just making sure that they get the amount that they gave the company back plus interest. And, um, because of leverage lending guidelines and a lot of the rules that came into effect after the financial crisis of 2018, um, more often than not, traditional banks now are really rigid in terms of what they can do and flexibility within the capital structures, as well as um, how they can structure deals. And because of that, private credit funds were really born and private credit funds have become such a huge piece of the market now. And essentially what private credit funds do is they're similar to traditional banks and they're providing debt, except now they, some of them and most of them provide equity alongside of their debt instruments. Um, many of them, including ourselves, are set up like a traditional private equity fund, meaning it's a committed fund. Our investors are pension funds, endowment funds, insurance companies, family offices. They commit to our fund. Um, they pay us a management fee. 
carried interest. And then we go out and invest those dollars on behalf of them. We have discretion over that pool of capital, meaning they made the decision to invest in us and now they trust us to go out and find the companies and make those investments. Um, many of those funds, similar to private equity, are 10 year funds, meaning you have five years to invest the money and five years to get it back with some extensions along the way, very similar to um, private equity. And um, the, other, the other difference I think is too, is that many of them um, are not industry focused. Many are generalist funds. They're doing all sorts of different deals. So there are, I think for us anyway, we're the only pure play healthcare private credit fund out there um, that we're aware of. Um, there could be some out there that we don't know, but none that we're aware of. Um, there are private credit funds who have, you know, a healthcare team, or they might have one or two people that focus on healthcare, but nobody else that we know that are pure play healthcare companies. The other thing I might add is that when we think about healthcare, we don't do early stage healthcare. So don't think of us as a, like a VC healthcare business. So we're not doing anything that has FDA risk, meaning if that product on the pharmaceutical side or med device side needs FDA approval, we're not doing those types of deals. We're doing established healthcare businesses. Most of our businesses are services business businesses, but we will look at pharma and med device, but we don't take early stage FDA risk. And then um, to the right around private equity firms. So you have private equity is now also taken many forms um, for a long time. When people thought about private equity, they think about private equity firms like Greg's fund. It's a committed fund. It's a closed end fund, meaning investors come in, they put their money um, to folks like Greg and say, go invest this money in great companies, uh, find us the best deals uh, and deploy our capital responsibly. And they have a committed pool of capital. They have discretion over how they are going to provide that capital. Uh, over the years, uh, some other types of sponsors, I would say, have, have crept into the market. You'll hear things like independent sponsors, fundless sponsors um, are two kind of common other types of lingo that are out there. Uh, essentially, they and they take many different forms. Essentially, if you hear like independent sponsor or fundless sponsor, that essentially means they don't have a committed pool of capital behind them that they have full discretion of that they are going to deploy. It could be folks who come together and say, uh, you know, let's use an example. I come together with Brian and HR, I say, hey, we all know healthcare. Um, either we can't or we don't want to go raise a big pool of capital that we want to have discretion over. We want to go find a deal. And if we find that deal at that time, we'll go out and raise the money to make that deal happen. And that and then they get fees for finding that money. And, and sometimes some of them will play an operational role on a go forward basis. And some of them will just, you know, put the deal together, take a fee and then sit on the sidelines. And then you have some deals where an independent sponsor will actually play together with a fund like Greg's fund. So you might have two types of sponsors involved there. So the point is on the sponsor side, there's all sorts of different variations of sponsors. I think if you all are out talking to private equity firms or thinking about doing an internship with a private equity firm, or if you ever get the opportunity to also perhaps take a position in a private equity firm, or frankly, even a private credit fund, it's important to ask them, do you have committed capital? What fund are you on? Do you have dry powder within your fund, which means still has some money to deploy in deals? The, you know, if you take a position with a firm that is completely maxed out for their fund, maybe they haven't raised their next fund, they're not sure what they're going to do, 
and you want to make sure that you're at a place that has long-term success, that can get a little tricky. Also, if they don't have committed capital, you have to just understand that your fate is decided by every deal that they can somehow pull the deal together, generate revenue and, and then pay you your salary essentially. So those are some really important things to think about as you're thinking about longer term placement at funds. But maybe with that, I'll pause for a moment. Greg, do you, um, I mean, you're definitely much more entrenched on the private equity side. Do you have any thoughts around the Twin Jam or play with independent sponsors or what's, your, what's been your experience with um, interacting with some of those sort of non-traditional private equity sponsors? Yeah, I, th I think there are a lot um, more opportunities. You know, capital is, you guys hear about all the time, is uh, very easy to get nowadays. So a lot of people don't want to go through the hassle of raising money like um, like we've done and Melanie's done. I mean, it is a it is a grueling process. So a lot of them will try to find a deal and bring it to somebody like us and then cut economics. You know, we tend not to work with with too many fundless sponsors unless they have a true unique unique angle on a deal or um, they really understand the industry in a different way than we do because a lot of them try to come and get full economics, which means they want to, they want a fee plus they want carry. I'm already being paid that by my investors to go back to my investors and say, hey, in addition to you paying me, you're now paying this other party. It, it becomes difficult unless you really feel like you can structure it in a way to make sure that everybody's doing well. Um, you know, what, what we've seen is, you know, th these were probably more uh, prevalent at least for us in terms of deal flow uh, uh, a few years ago. Um, and the only reason I say that is they used to be able to find proprietary deals. It's harder for them to identify deals and be able to bring somebody like me an opportunity because there's so many investment banks out there now. So, um, but, but clearly these, these still exist. And uh, the Melanie's question earlier about making sure that somebody actually has fee income to be able to pay your salary is pretty critical when you start looking at these fundless sponsors. Um, because I think one of the one of the important things to also note here on the in sponsors, like you might have they have like find some they have like five portfolio companies and they just that's their route. And for those of you who might have more risk appetite and you want to get in early and you're working with one person who has three to five portfolio companies, and then if you have that risk appetite, then you can be part of that team and maybe you either do an internship or guess what? Then you're, you know, now you're the VP because you've been working your ass off for a year and you've proved yourself. Um, we have a couple of those internships right now that are available. Um, but I think another in a, uh, note here on the independent sponsors, many of you have heard of uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition or like the search fund model. That is a type of fundless sponsor. Um, guys, this was super helpful. And maybe we could put a pin on this as well as Melanie, maybe later on the presentation, I don't know where, but talking about like turns of debt on a deal, what that means, um, mm -hmm. senior, junior, et cetera. But that's, this is super, super helpful to go through that. Yeah, great, thanks. So maybe we'll just uh, pause here for a second because we're gonna shift over here to Brian's portion of um, picking it off into our process. Does anybody have any questions on what we've discussed thus far? No. Okay. I, I, I think the breakdown re really makes a lot of sense. So I appreciate it. I, like it probably felt pretty elementary to, to y'all, but like just being able to follow and see it is super helpful for me. Thanks. Uh, no problem. That's great. Okay. With that, we will um, 
sorry, hold on a second. We'll shift gears here and I'll turn it over to Brian to walk through our process uh, and walk through how we think about a deal from sourcing to closing the deal. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll walk through our sort of deal process. And, um, and I want to kind of start with the big picture here, right? Um, this is a process map of, you know, how we think about in terms of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I try to break this down, you know, which starts from sourcing the deals, which, by the way, we're, you know, we'll talk more about in the next couple of slides. It's a very difficult job um, and, you know, and, and an absolute key to success of the fund because the quality of the deal flows really matter. Um, and then the better the quality um, and the higher the quantity of the deal that we see, um, we can pick better deals. And that just, that just uh, the deal selection is and it's as simple as that. Um, but I would say as a senior associate slash VP, um, we spend about 50 to 75% of our time on executing transactions uh, and really managing the deal process, right? Um, so these middle three boxes that you see here, um, and taking this from screening to underwriting to closing, um, and really managing the due diligence process, and, and that's where a significant part of our time is spent. And then uh, the remaining 20 to 25 to 50 percent is really split between, you know, assisting the sourcing efforts, um, you know, which include reaching out, introducing our firm, and building relationships with the industry contacts, um, and obviously portfolio management once the deals are closed. Um, again, you know, we'll give you more context as we go through the slides and, and what these stages specifically mean. Um, and we'll reference the deal, um, but wanted to give you guys kind of like a big picture first. Um, we'll kind of we'll kind of go from there. Um, and in terms of how you would think about a senior associate's role versus analysts or associates, um, you know, I would say analysts really help out in you know any parts of the, these deal execution activities. You know, doing a research here, um, you know, writing parts of the investment memo. Um, sometimes helping build out a model. Um, a lot of analysts are usually coming right out of undergrad or has only like a couple of years of um, experience. Um, and the objective for them is to really learn, right? Learn, learning about the industry, um, how we operate. Um, and then the associates are a bit more experienced. By the way, these are not senior associates, more like a junior associates, but you know, they can help run diligence, you know, should be very proficient with the models. Uh, they know how to think about the investment thesis and risk. Um, and they should also be able to develop, you know, get a good chunk of the investment memo as well. So that's their role. And as a senior associate and VP, um, I would say you're more in charge and then managing the full process um, and really forming well-vetted opinions and making investment recommendations. Um, so I think that's how I would think about the distinction between uh, some of the more junior roles and as you move up to senior associate and VP role. And by the way, a lot of times, you know, people coming out of, it, of the MBAs, uh, they'll be joining firms, you know, probably at the senior associate level. Um, so I wanted to highlight that as well. Um, I think we can go on to the next slide. Sorry, go ahead. So this is um, sort of like another framework for how we think about the deal process, um, specifically in the middle section from the previous slide. Uh, the transaction execution stage, um, once we had a deal, you know, then this is sort of how we think about it. So, you know, once we have an opportunity and meaning we would usually have an overview material on the company, I think Greg mentioned the last time too, usually it's, it's what's called a SIM. Um, it's, it's a confidential information memorandum. Um, you know, it's a 40 page to sometimes 100 page long document that gives an overview about the company um, and the opportunity 
Um, and then we would read through that, right? We would read through that and then start to develop a thesis, um, investment thesis. And we also start to think about, um, you know, what the key risk um, areas are, are and what are some of the areas of diligence that they will have to um, dig into in order to mitigate the risk, right? So sort of hypothesizing is where we began. Um, then we look to validate the thesis um, and then really look to cover the risk. Um, and again, how we do that is we start with the due diligence, right? You start to learn about the industry that the company operates in. You learn about the business model, the financials, and the historical track record. Um, you learn about the management team, and then we conduct legal diligence as well. And then, and this is not an this is not an exhaustive list, right? I mean, you can diligence whatever you think are critical for the success of the business. Um, you know, i.e., if you're in like a chemicals industry, then I would think that environmental due diligence is is, is critical, right? Um, and because we're in healthcare, and I'll talk more about this later too, um, the reimbursement due diligence is very near and dear to our heart. Um, and that, that's an important aspect that we focus on as well. Um, and then just to hammer on that point again, the due diligence is really critical. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about getting a thorough understanding of, uh, about the business and then the environment that it operates in and the people that operate the business and then really covering the risk and then minimizing the surprises, right? And you can take the risk, I think, if we can identify the risk um, and well mitigate it and get compensated for it. But, you know, if you fail to identify the risk and really invest blindly into something, I think that's just another form of uh, speculation. So due diligence is something that we heavily focus on. And once you sort of conducted your due diligence, you build a financial model to think about the future projections. Um, and then all it kind of all becomes part of how we think about the pricing, you know, how much debt we put on the company, um, and legal negotiation as well. So, um, you know, this, this is a full circle, but it's also important to note that, you know, this is a continuing process, right? The loop doesn't just happen once. You know, when you get new information, you try to understand, refine your model. Um, and obviously, you can't negotiate every time you get new info, but we should have a sense of, you know, how much we like the company, what are the, some of the key risks in our head, um, and really assessing that on an ongoing basis. So that's how we sort of think about the, the deal process and, and the framework of, of due diligence and, and thinking about the thesis and the risk. Um, but that's at a high level. And again, we'll, we'll dig a little bit deeper into this with the case study. But, you know, I can, I can try to pause there and see if you guys have any questions. <clears throat> Hey, Brian, I've got a quick question for you. As you're talking about this entire process, obviously it's dependent on the size of the deal you're trying to source and the company and, and the market conditions, but what's, what's a basic timeline here, you know, from, from originally finding a company and saying, Hey, let's really take a look at this. Let's dig into the economics. Let's dig into the environment that it's operating in um, and, and model it out and try and structure a deal. Um, I, again, I know that's probably a loaded question, but um, yeah, just a basic timeline, if you could elaborate on that a little bit. No, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And it really depends, right? It, it, it really depends on the, um, the timing of the financing needs of the, the sellers or people who need the capital, right? So sometimes they move at a lot faster speed, um, and especially if there's an auction involved, Right, if, if it's like a broad auction where multiple PE sponsors are looking at the opportunity and try to win up the opportunity, um, we definitely have more compressed timing on those. I would say, you know, you know, as, as usually I would I generally see about two or three months from you know you know since the sourcing of the deal to close. But I mean, I've, I've closed deals, 
you know, within a month. I mean, that, that has definitely happened before, and, and it's not ideal because you always want to dig in, understand the business, and make sure that you're covering the risk. But, you know, it, it does happen, and you just have to move, this, move, move at the speed of the market and sort of where uh, the customers, you know, need their the financing needs. So that, that's, that's how we look at it. Usually two or three months is on, on the average, but I've seen as, as short as one month. Awesome. Thanks so much. And some of that, um, Alexander, I would also just note is that while we're doing our work, there are other, we call them third party people doing their work. So if there's like a quality of earnings report that needs to be done or something else or regulatory due diligence that needs to be done, all of those reports also are parallel work streams to what we're doing. And they usually generally take some time. So sometimes as quick as everybody might want the deal done. It's also contingent on all of those other parties doing their work and coming together, providing the reports and then having people be able to digest the reports. And perhaps if there are any changes that need to happen as a result of the reports, uh, working through that as well. So the other thing that just happens from a private equity perspective, right? If we're, if we're getting the deal in and, and Melanie and her team are working with a, a sponsor, Right, we're getting the deal in, and we're sending it to three or four people like Melanie, and getting their their views on the deal because not every not every lender is going to like your deal, right? So Melanie would likely call and say, "Hey, this is great. We'd like to work with you," and then they then they really start partnering with you, and they work through your process with you. But a lot of times, their information is then being funneled through our organization, if it's, if she's working with a sponsor and then Melanie, I don't know, do you guys work with multiple sponsors on the same deal? Um, because that is another thing that a lot of lenders would do. They, they, they have three or four chances to win a deal because they might have, you know, four great partners that they're working with. Yeah, I would say, uh, Greg, certainly when I was at GE, I mean, we would have a deal in that was in the market from four or five sponsors. So we'd have uh, we call them Chinese walls, but we'd have walls set up so that there's different people working with each individual sponsor because you can't cross uh, information that way. Um, for us at Anagenesis, because we're a small team, a small firm, and, and we don't, I mean, we've played in auction processes, but that isn't, hasn't been our core part of our business. We haven't been in a situation where we've uh, represented two different sponsors, but in larger organizations and larger firms, that happens all the time to Greg's point, which you're essentially competing even internally. So um, it, uh, it can be a, quite an interesting dynamic that's happening for sure. Uh, does anybody else have any other questions or we can move on to the next slide? Uh, just a point on pricing. I think, uh, can you talk about just high level differences on like a senior lender, the general range and a junior lender or the general range, kind of how that plays into the, the debt side of a, a deal. Brian, you wanna take that and I'll hop in. Yeah, I, I can start with, I, I can just give a really high level um, and then Melanie, we can, you can get into the weeds as well. But I mean, generally speaking, so, um, you know, and it also depends, you know, on the size of the company, uh, the, the credit characteristics, um, as well as how much leverage you're putting on. But, you know, kind of get a high level, I would think that on a senior debt, you get paid L plus 400, L plus 500. And then as a junior lender like us, um, we look for pricing, you know, somewhere in between 10 to 12%. Um, so that, that's, uh, that's the difference that we're talking about. And one of the other interesting things to note about 
this is that uh, when you're talking with anagenesis or a small team, they move fast. You're talking with the decision makers. It's a super small team as opposed to a senior lender commercial bank when you have multiple steps. And when you're a, when you have $10 million that you got to do on a debt financing in two months, that's one of the biggest, like a huge benefit of going with a private credit firm is that you're talking to the decision makers. So Jordan, that's a really good point. Um, just to touch on the pricing for a moment, when Brian's referencing L plus um, the rate that he uh, will mention, L stands for LIBOR, if you guys are familiar with that term. So some people are familiar with Prime because a lot of other types of traditional consumer financing is tied to Prime, but LIBOR, as you know, is it may or may not know, it comes in 30, 60, 90 days. There's different levels of LIBOR. It's a, you can research it online. They're, the rates are published, um, but it's kind of the generally accepted um, floating rate within our, within our um, industry, although it's changing. LIBOR um, is essentially going away, so that's going to change over time. But uh, when we're saying LIBOR plus something, it's plus that basis point. And right now, rates are really low. So typically what happens in deals, is people will put something called a LIBOR floor, which means you'll do a deal and you'll say, okay, you'll have a floating rate. So say it's LIBOR plus 400, for example. If LIBOR is only less than 1%, say it's you know 0.32%, that doesn't even really give you juice on your floating rate return. But if you put in a floor, it means, okay, at no time can LIBOR be less than 1%. So if it's more than 1%, it's whatever that current rate is, but it cannot go below 1%. So a lot of deals will have a floor in it because lenders don't want to get caught upside down where LIBOR goes so low that their rate isn't what they expect. So for senior lenders, they usually do floating rate. They'll do LIBOR plus something. For junior lenders, a lot of times it'll be a fixed rate. So it'll just say like 10%, 12%, whatever it is. Those are generalizations. But those are two distinctions. And then Jordan, to your point about speed, uh, it's certainly true. It's one of our other competitive advantages because when we're working on deals, um, whether it's my partner, Jerry or myself, we're on every deal. And so whoever we're talking to knows they're talking to one of the decision makers. And essentially, you know, as we're moving through the process, we can be really transparent and we can act with speed. Um, you know, if we're, if Brian and I, like this deal we'll talk about in a moment, it was Brian and I on the deal team. So we're, you know, going through it and that's who they're talking to every day. When you're at a large organization, like where Brian and I came from at GE and now Cap One, there's different levels. There's a ton of properties and the challenges. If you're someone like Greg, who's relying on us in an auction process to go win a deal, and I say to him, Sam at GE, and I say to him, Greg, I'm going to be there, but I have to go through two more committees. I might get to my committee, my third committee, and it could have nothing to do with the deal that I'm presenting. Maybe some other part of the organization had an issue with that subsector within healthcare. Maybe we're full up on our commitments at this point. You know, they could come back and say, sorry, we're not going to do the deal. And now I've essentially left Greg at the altar and I could potentially blow up his deal. So that's a, a big risk when you're dealing with larger organizations. You're typically having to go through multiple steps, multiple committees. Those committees are not connected to the deal and, um, and can leave private equity firms in a lurch. And for me, for many years being on the front lines at, at GE uh, and then prior to that even, um, 
uh, that my previous organizations, you know, what I learned very early in my career is I would rather say no to a deal uh, with a private equity firm and not leave them at the altar. Or if I started to hear noise or caution internally, I would say to somebody like Greg, hey, listen, I'd love to work on this deal with you. I'm happy to keep working on it, but you should find a backup plan because I don't know if I'm going to get there. And I would rather tell them to have a backup plan. You either have to split a deal or lose a deal than leave them at the altar. If you leave a private equity firm at the altar and blow up their deal, you're probably never going to see a deal from them again. And if they're really pissed at you, they'll go to the market and tell the rest of the market that you left them at the altar. And that can be devastating for your career. So fortunate for me personally, I was really successful in what I did. And I didn't have to fight for every deal or feel compelled that I needed to do the next deal in order to get my bonus. Um, so I could turn down deals and push deals um, to other people if I didn't think we were gonna get there. And, and that's really what creates long-term relationships. And, it, and Greg, I don't know if you wanna touch on that but, or if you've ever been left at the altar, but um, it's an important aspect is, as these guys think about joining the industry and being really transparent and honest with what's happening. I think the the um, you know the one thing that they're Melanie and Brian are touching on right is is process management right which all of you guys know how to do in in the organizations that that you run and there's internal and external processes when you get into the financial services sector and yes I in 08 and 09 I do remember having a pretty spirited discussion with somebody who tried to charge me 20% for senior debt right after the collapse of the financial markets so. Um, Yes, that, and, 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 and to, to your point, I've never done business with that individual ever again, so. And Greg, your point about process management, guys, in, in positioning yourself, um, really play up the process management side of what you have done. And then now it's just a matter of understanding what the process is and saying, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, you know, process management. I know how to manage this. And then as you start to then connect that to, yeah, I can actually speak to the debt process, speak to the M&A sale process. Um, it's going to make it so much easier. Well, and, and as, as I know, I've spoken to some of you guys here, right? I think, you know, thinking about your world as planning process and execution, that translates directly into an operating role, a deal role, as you can see that Brian's talking about, and, you know, the ability to translate your, your time in the military in those key buckets and hopefully with an internship is an easy way for, you know, Melanie or I to be able to go, oh, I, I get how you can fit in my organization. Like that, that's an important, that's an, those are important skills to have. That's true. Okay, great. Well, if no other questions, we'll flip here to the next screen, which is really around uh, talking about uh, sourcing deal pipeline. We know this is small for you guys to have a look at, but we'll touch on specifically what's on the screen. We thought we'd take a moment just to talk about sourcing more broadly. So we get our deals from folks like Greg, um, private equity firms who are looking for debt and uh, equity co-investment alongside of their debt. We get uh, deal opportunities from founders of companies that are looking to um, need growth capital. We get deals from other people in the industry and for Zach over at uh, Backbone with Britt Terrell. Uh, Britt and I have known each other since 2006 and Britt has um, shared deals with us in the past. So we've worked with Britt directly. Uh, and then we get deals from investment banks who are either running full on auction processes to sell businesses or 
uh, maybe they're mandated to provide to go out and find debt financing for uh, a particular business. So they're running an auction process, but it's more for debt financing versus a majority um, sale of a company. And in terms of sourcing deals and originations, um, you know, this is my strength within um, within our firm, and and it has always been my strength um, from an industry perspective. And I think. Um, in general, on the private credit side, this is certainly the case at GE and the case at Anagenesis. We're, and Greg, you touched on this when you touched on your pipeline, but the hit rate for the number of deals that you have to see to what you close is pretty uh, pretty low. So I think you had quoted like 3%, if I remember, 2 or 3%. Um, and that's certainly the case we've seen for private equity firms. For, for our firm, it's, you know, at, at GE, it was about 10% for me from deals that I looked at to deals that I closed. For us at Anagenesis, because we have to be even more selective, we have a very focused portfolio. Um, you know, we're in and around 5% of what we see, we actually end up closing. So if you think about the funnel that you have to have to be able to close a deal and the amount of work that it takes to get one closed, I mean, there's a lot of places where you're saying no or it falls away or you're doing diligence and it doesn't work out or you lose a deal. So to actually get to a close, and we always say like, don't celebrate until the wires have moved because anything can happen until the wires move. Um, when the wires move, you know, you think you'd have a big party and be all excited, but typically on that call that you have, which is called a closing call where the lawyers confirm every, everything has been done, everybody's ready to wire their money and wires can move. People typically say like, congratulations, but they're so exhausted by the process. They're like, congratulations, and then just breathe. There's no like popping of champagne or enjoying things. And then usually you're on to like the next 20 things you have to do. So Greg, I see you smiling. So I know it's the case for you as well. But, um, you know, we closed uh, two deals on New Year's Eve, um, which you can imagine trying to close a deal on New Year's Eve was we were literally wiring at like 5 p.m. On, on New Year's Eve. So, um, but at that point we were so exhausted, you know, everyone's like, hey, you can go celebrate. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I have, feel like I haven't slept in like seven days. So there was no celebration, um, but those things happen, right? So the point being that you have to source a lot of deals to close deals. And um, from my perspective to the point I was just making earlier about being transparent, being honest, being willing to lose a deal to save a relationship, um, you know, that's always been my strategy from origination perspective. I'm a long-term relationship player. So I'm not willing to blow up, potentially blow up a long-term relationship for, to get one deal. You know, I want to see repeat deals. I want the reputation in the market to be, if we say we're going to deliver, we're going to deliver. We're going to keep our terms similar to what we say we're going to do unless something changes. If something changes, be very transparent about that. So I think being open and upfront and honest and developing long-term relationships and relationships are not just about doing deals there's so much more than that we talked about you know um interacting with people you know having to spend time with people you know if i want to do deals with greg i can't just call greg and say hey do you have any deals for me to work on i need to add value to greg i need to say greg have you just heard about what's happening in healthcare i think a really interesting place for you to look in healthcare is Podiatry, you know, there's some trends in podiatry that could be really interesting. I know you're interested in in, in roll-ups or platforms. You know, here's an interesting area. Where, hey, I, I know there's this company that um, I think is coming to market. As Greg mentioned when he did his case study, 
he actually got that through somebody he had been talking to for a long time who knew it was coming to market, then called Greg. That's how relationships are created. And the other way that relationships are created through personal relationships. So for example, Brian and I have a situation, unfortunately, where one of our clients, CFO's father passed away. You know, we're going to send him, you know, flowers to acknowledge that, you know, or, or a condolence gift to acknowledge a passing of a family member. You know, these people that you do business with and you're with for a long, long, many, many years uh, become your friends, essentially, as much as they are business people. And you really have to cultivate those relationships. Uh, so, Greg, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but that's how I think about sourcing and just business development in general. I think that's a great, great overview. Okay, perfect. Well, maybe with that, Brian, I'll turn it over to you to just touch on kind of our pipeline, what we track, um, and, and Brian's really uh, responsible for kind of pulling our pipeline together. We use Salesforce to do that, and that's the output you're seeing. But I'll turn it over to Brian to walk through what we're tracking and how we're thinking about things. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, this is what our deal pipeline looks like. Like Melanie just mentioned, I do, I do track this on a weekly basis. Um, and then we utilize Salesforce um, and we talk about this our, during our weekly uh, Monday morning team calls. Um, and then and this, uh, this is a lot of different information, right? We have the company names, the deal project names, or the sponsors are, you know, what are the deal sources, um, you know, what are the, the, the business focus um, and, and what in which healthcare subsector they're in. Um, as well as some of the, you know, the financials, like EBITDA and how much debt they're looking for, um, you know, and then they, they all, we also have notes and summaries and things like that. So this is a pretty fulsome document, you know, that we, we do go through every week and then, then we talk through these individual deals, um, at least at a high level, um, and discuss the status um, and the next steps. Um, and then we further, like, largely break this down into deals at the uh, early screening stage, underwriting stage, and also we talk about the deals that, that are on hold. A lot of times, deals do get put on hold for, for various reasons, right? The company is looking to uh, recontemplate their structure, um, you know, or, or as doing diligence, we find something, the deal that, that we don't like. Um, but, you know, they, they do happen quite frequently, and, and, and we monitor these because in, in some of the cases, they do pick back up later on in the process, um, you know, as, as the issues are resolved. So this is a, the pipeline, um, and then I guess, and, and obviously, we also record all the, the dev deals, including those that we sort of lost on, um, as well as the deals that we closed on. So this is a snapshot of our pipeline. Hey, I, um... I want to jump in real quick, just because like I'm seeing about a thousand parallels here between this and uh, you know I, I apologize for you know my brothers out there who've had to deal with this, but what what we would call a conop approval process or a concept of operations, where it's essentially an operation that a team on the ground wants to go do. They can't just go run out and do it. There's a there's an approval process that it goes through where. If they're going into a certain area where somebody else has interests that may get disrupted, or there's certain types of resourcing, like they need the right aircraft or um, or uh, um, drones overhead to support their mission or things like that, there's a lot of things that have to be coordinated. And a lot of times the operations staff is paying very close attention to what conops do we have in the stack right now and where are they? And the commander is very interested in making sure that things are moving along. And then when it comes to relationship management, if it's something where 
uh, State Department or an intelligence organization has to get involved, oftentimes that requires those commander to senior executive type phone calls or some type of explanation of this is why we think this is very important that we do this. And this is how we're not going to uh, kind of ruin things in your area. Um, I mean, and we go, through, we have a regular weekly commander's update brief where it's like, all right, what are the con ops on the deck? And where are they in the process? Where does the commander need to get involved to potentially, um, you know, move, move something forward that's kind of got hung up for some reason. Um, but I, like I'm taking a million notes in my notebook right now about how this very specifically translates to some of the coordination we had to do um, to get our operations approved for execution. Um, I, like, it looks like almost the exact same thing. It's fascinating. One of the notes here for the guys is like, get familiar with Salesforce. Um, in Slack, I posted that uh, internship opportunity with the West Coast um, uh, private credit firm. Like they have Salesforce, they don't know how to use it. It's not rolled out. So if you can create this kind of reports for them, for example, like they're institutionalizing and then just use it as if you have not used Salesforce, just this is a great opportunity to learn how to use it because you use it every single day. And it's going to really decrease the ramp up time and also increase your odds of like, yes, I already speak your language. I know what you do. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Uh, Greg, what um, do you use a, a, a CRM platform or what do you guys do for Windjammer? Um, we use DealCloud now. We had used Microsoft Dynamics, but DealCloud is effectively, it's effectively Salesforce for the private equity industry. Okay, but it, okay. it's got a few more tools because it helps you manage your pipeline and kind of your weekly investment committee process. Okay. Yeah, I've seen emails from them, but I've never used DealCloud. You know, others who have used it. Okay, great. Well, if anyone doesn't have any other questions on that, I'll keep moving along here. Okay, so now we're going to touch into the specific case study. And I'll turn this back over to Brian to uh, talk about the deal that him and I closed on last year. Yep. Um, thanks, Melanie. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk through our process again. And again, this time we're going to put some context into it uh, by walking through the, the deal that, that we recently closed on, as Melanie mentioned, just in December, so a couple of months ago. Um, and just to provide a quick background. So the company is, we'll call it Project Lighthouse. Um, Lighthouse is a regional behavior health organization that operates um, inpatient hospitals and outpatient facilities in the state of Louisiana. Um, so the way to think about this business is, is that they treat people with um, mental illnesses uh, that are um, that are potentially at the risk of harming themselves and, and or others, right? So it's, it's involuntary services, um, very critical services. You get you get referred into these facilities. Um, from primarily um, the ERs, the emergency rooms. Um, so that's sort of the, the high level background on the company. Um, so we got this deal in from one of our uh, PE sponsor relationships who was looking to acquire the company um, and was looking to um, you know, put, some, put some leverage on it. So they're looking for a debt capital provider, right? Um, so once we received the same, um, again, the overview material on the company, uh, we discussed the team, whether we liked the deal or not, um, at a high level. And then once we thought that this opportunity was worth pursuing, um, we then decided to write what's called a, a new deal summary. Um, that, and that's, uh, that's a term for managenesis. 
Um, and that's basically um, the screening memo that, that you see on the, the right side of the screen. Um, it's, it's a four, you know, four to five page document. Um, it's after you conducted your initial research um, and the analysis on the company and the industry. Um, and just to kind of come back to the senior associate VP role, um, you obviously um, have continuing discussions with your deal teams. Uh, but as a senior associate or VP, you're generally responsible for uh, doing this, you know, doing the analysis as well as the write-up. So uh, that's the so that's the format of the the screening memo. And and on this one specifically, um, you know, we we really like the industry here. Behavioral health industry is very solid. I mean, you know, there are multiple reasons for it. One being, you know, continued lessening of social stigmas for receiving these types of services you know, increased government and payer support. Um, so continued supply and demand imbalance, meaning that there's a ton of demand for these types of services, yet only limited providers that's out there that can provide proper services. And then also uh, for um, dislocation from COVID, as you can imagine, um, you know, since the pandemic has begun, unfortunately the, the number of people with depressions, um, anxiety and, um, and suicidal thoughts have skyrocketed. Um, so that's obviously very unfortunate reality, um, but that is a driver that we have to think about, you know, how that could impact the business, right? So uh, that's the industry. Um, I think the challenging thing on this one was that while we, we really like the macro, we like the behavioral health industry, um, there were certain challenges that around the reimbursement that we had to really focus on. Um, and I don't know how many of you guys are, you know, familiar with healthcare, but again, as I mentioned before, reimbursement is really important aspect um, in many healthcare companies because that's 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 how they get paid, right? Um, the oversimplified way to think about that is revenue is basically price times volume. Um, the volume is the number of patients that you know that the company treats, um, and price is the reimbursement rate that the company receives for for treating the patient, right? So. Um, and for this company specifically, um, they had a concentration in the source of reimbursement um, in which about 40% of revenue was reimbursed by Louisiana Medicaid. Um, what that means is that the company, you know, was exposed to the economic and health conditions of Louisiana. Um, and because if there are pressures on Louisiana's budget, you know, they can reduce the size, they can reduce the, the size of the Medicaid program. And, and the Medicaid program is really funded by the state, right? Uh, so that can in turn reduce the, the reimbursement rates for the company services, um, and they can have meaningful negative impact on the company. So as you know, um, some of the states, you know, some of the state budgets were pressured, especially because of COVID. Um, so we did have to do a lot of work to get comfortable around this um, issue. Um, and there are obviously some other things that we had to deal with as well. But, you know, I, I would say that this reimbursement risk was our number one risk that we really had to dig in and understand and get comfortable with. Um, and lastly, after you sort of do your initial research, you, you develop an early read model to figure out um, what the company's free cash flow generation looks like. Um, how much debt that they can support, when that, what our initial returns look like. Um, and I think at the end of the day, the goal is to really to, to form an early view of the company, right? Do we like the company um, and the opportunity? Um, and what are some of the key risk and diligence areas that we will need to focus on, right? And finally, uh, providing guidance to PE sponsors, investment banks, and order management teams on, you know, how we think about the opportunity, what's our view, um, and provide leverage read um, and issue term sheet.
so that's sort of the the screening stage of um, you know how we think about it, how we go about it um, at, at Anagenesis. I can pause here and see if you have any questions. Yeah, Brian, I've got one brief question. And Melanie, you brought up the the hit rates you have on on you see a deal and and what percentage of the time do you actually close that deal? Uh, how many of the deals? you know, from inception on day one to seeing it, do you actually vet through this process, right? I mean, are you spending time to go through this on every single company or is this, hey, uh, we looked at the, the basic fundamentals of this business and now we're going to take it to the next level? All right, you want to take no, that? You want to take that one? Um, oh, sure, yeah. So um, I, I would say anywhere between... Um, probably 20, 25% of the deals that, that we get in, um, we go through the stage of writing up the NDA, the new deal summary. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we read the deal and then you're right. I think we do find things that are trickier for us. Um, so, you know, that we can provide the feedback on and then be upfront about it early on. But if we, you know, do look at the opportunity, if we like it, uh, there's a path forward here. Um, then, then we do go through the stage, and I think 25%, maybe, maybe in the upwards of 30% too. That's about how many deals that that we sort of that sort of goes through this um, early screening stage. I don't yeah, know if now we different yeah. thoughts. Yeah, I was just going to add. You know, we have things called desk kills, which means they come in, and for whatever reason, we'll see something about the deal that it doesn't fit within what we do or there's something about it we know we don't like from the onset and we call that a desk kill which is like an immediate no if it's something that we see that's interesting that we want to provide a leverage read on or if we want to provide a term sheet we'll go through this process and part of this is back to the point about certainty and transparency and whatnot this allows our team to look at all this information and establish if it's something that we want to continue to learn more about and move forward in our process. Perfect, thanks everybody. And, and Brian, to, to produce this, what materials have you received and from whom? Is it a SIM that you get from the sponsor? And then how long does it take for you to scan that SIM on a Monday in order to produce this the next Monday, for example? Like, can you just talk a little bit about the process to create this? Yeah, for sure. So. A lot of times we, we at least had the SIM um, and from the, the sponsor, whether it be the sponsors or the investment banks, um, sometimes we have a little more materials because, you know, if we're engaged from a PE sponsor and they've done some work on the company, um, then we do get those info. Um, sometimes we also have additional dialogue with the sponsors or, or the management teams um, before we put this together. Um, with that, I mean, once we have the SIM in, and then I start digging in right away. I mean, even before we start having team conversations, I started learning up on, on this case, obviously the behavioral health industry, which I'm actually was somewhat familiar with before. But, you know, if, if it's any industry that I'm not familiar with, I start reading things right up, you know, right away, whether that's via, you know, we have access to Capital IQ. Capital IQ has a lot of different industry reports. Um, I sometimes, you know, give guys that I used to know from Capital One um, a call, and then they're, you know, experts in the field just to get, just to pick their brains on it. Um, so I, I go through that initial research process, um, and I would say, you know, you know, once I receive the sim, 
um, I can, you know, pull this together, you know, as quick as within two to three days. And then obviously I would be working the full, you know, two, three days to kind of pull this together. Um, but usually I think, yeah, we want to have a team discussion first, um, you know, not rush into it if we don't have to. Um, but with, uh, I would say if we have a week, that's a plenty of time for me. But generally I would say two or three days to pull this together. The other thing I just wanted to touch on when, when you're reading a SIM, a confidential information memorandum, if it's coming from an investment bank, you have to read what's in there. And Greg touched on this a little bit too when he was talking through his case study, you have to read what's in the SIM, but also what's not in the SIM. So one of the benefits of us being industry focused and having years and years of being in the healthcare space is and to which Brian just alluded to about looking at other behavioral health deals is that when you're looking at this deal, you might read the information and if you don't know healthcare, you might not even realize, oh, Medicaid, one state Medicaid is a is a risk that we have to to really work through because the stem might say like, hey, everything's fine, or maybe they won't even address reimbursement, which is also equally as crazy in the healthcare world. But sometimes you have to think about what is missing out of the documents and ask questions around that because SIMs are really sell side uh, documents. So they're meant to really dress up the company and provide the business in the best light. And some of them are really salesy and others are pretty you know, direct to what the company looks like. But it's about understanding that not all the questions are from what you read. Some of the questions come from what aren't you reading that intuitively should be there. And, you know, at the benefit that Brian and I have and, and our other colleague, um, Scott Clark at, at, at uh, Anagenesis um, is that when you're in this space for a long time, I was, you know, focused on healthcare for nine years. And even for me personally uh, in that platform, I reviewed over 550 healthcare deals, just myself for deals that I generated for that platform. But then every week we were also doing, you know, two credit committees where we're talking about deals and everybody else, not to that level, but everybody else is generating deals too. So at any, you know, at any point in time, Brian and I have probably been exposed to, you know, 50 different behavioral health companies. So when this one comes in, we kind of know, oh, here's some general things we need to look at and where we need to focus. Now, not all industries, you have to have that level of, of really industry expertise. But in general, if you're at a firm and you do a deal in what pick manufacturing, the next deal that comes in that's manufacturing, they'll probably have you work on it because now you've seen one and just over time, you get that skill set and, and people just kind of look at you as the internal person that might know a specific industry. So if there's no other questions here, we'll just keep going. Okay, yeah, and in terms of the underwriting, that, that's like after the screening stage, obviously, um, we move on to the underwriting stage, which is more fulsome um, dive into the company, um, and this is a process where you are um, diving deep um, in order to better understand the company and specifically focus on the some of the key diligence areas that we just talked about, um, and the way that we do diligence um, you know, we look at materials provided by the company, the bankers, in the in, in the form of the files posted to the what's called the data room, and we can talk more about what the data room is. But um, and then we also work on diligence questions list, 
um, and have multiple calls with the management team um, or the sponsor uh, to get clarification and understanding about the company. Um, we also will have access to what's called a third-party report. Uh, so these are basically diligence or analysis completed by other third-party firms that have significant knowledge and an expertise in, in a specific function. Um, for example, for accounting, you know, Big Four, KPMG, Pricewaterhouse, you know, Deloitte, you know, would do a lot of the accounting due diligence in what's called the quality of earnings, and that, that's basically to validate earnings. And consulting firms like, you know, McKenzie or Bain would do industry or market studies. Um, and for healthcare, companies like Farragut or Marwood would do reimbursement studies. And then these are very detailed diligence, and it takes months for them to complete as well. Um, and we rely on them because they have you know, significant domain expertise. So um, that's on the third party. And then we also do our own independent research, as I mentioned before, whether that's by doing our own meeting, um, more about the industry, um, researching their competitors, um, and et cetera. Um, and then we also would like to call on industry contacts or experts on this one. One of the key contacts that we had through Melanie's relationship is that um, we were able to talk to a gentleman who used to lead Tennessee Medicaid, um, and he had a significant uh, knowledge in the sector um, and then just the overall Medicaid programs. Um, so we utilized him to get thoughts, and then that was hugely valuable, right? Um, but again, um, just to kind of come back, the goal, the goal of this to get really deep into understanding the key drivers of the business. Um, and again, the, the environment in which they operate in. Um, and as I mentioned before, on this specific deal, um, we focus a lot on getting comfortable with the reimbursement dynamics. Um, and then that's what I put, you know, put on some of the analysis here around that. Um, I know it's hard for you guys to see, but it's basically talking about some of the key themes about Louisiana Medicaid. Um, Medicare was also another large portion of their revenue. So we, we dug in on that. Um, and what the experts think about the reimbursement environment in the future. It's really collecting different data points, getting, you know, industry experts' opinions, um, and using that to really, you know, form a more solidified view, right? Um, so once we're done with this, right, we also ran models, um, we sensitized and looked at what the, company's, what the company's earnings would look like, you know, had their reimbursement, you know, decreased by 3% or 5% or 10%. Um, and the takeaway here is that the company can withstand some meaningful reimbursement rate pressure, but this, this is some of the work that, that we have to go through to truly understand the business, the drivers of the business, sensitize it based on what we've learned, and try to get comfortable with it. So, you guys do a scorecard in terms of like key things and how you're rating that? We do not. Um, I, we, we did. I, I did back at uh, back in GE Capital and, and Capital on Healthcare. Um, they definitely had a more sort of um, way of looking at things that's sort of um, within what what they call is within the strike zone. Um, if, and if it's outside the strike zone, um, it's really it's almost impossible to get that deal through. I think we try to be more flexible around that. I think we do look at deals on a deal by deal level basis. Um, you know, but I think the strike zone at some level, just to give us a sort of like sense of, you know, where, where this deal is the, the, in terms of the characteristics of the deals and then, and, you know, uh, just, just the general parameters of deal. I think that's something that we should think about going forward too. But right now we don't, we don't have that as part of the process. I didn't know, for example, like 
management or industry risk and it had a scale of one to five and it was like red to green. Um, I didn't know if you had that kind of system, for example. I, I've seen one other firm, but and Greg, I didn't yeah. know you had. Yeah, we don't look at it that way. Okay. Greg, I don't know. You know, I, I would say, um, you know, as, as your firm grows, you, you know, I think Brian just said that at GE, they used to do that. I know at larger firms, they tend to have more kind of process and protocols put in place because they can't just sit down like Melanie's team can and say, hey, let's talk about this. Um, we're, we're probably going through some of those growing pains now in terms of having to put more processes in place than frankly we'd like to have because we like to view ourselves more as an entrepreneurial organization. But you start to get to a certain size and you need to have a way to kind of calibrate across the portfolio. Yeah. Uh, okay. um, maybe for Alex or Tyler or the guys who have gone through like training the street and other courses, like what you're seeing here, have you, are you getting exposure to this level of modeling in the courses that you're doing? Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to not use my mouse. So uh, no. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I haven't got this deep in in the courses I'm looking at yet. Yeah, Jordan, I haven't either. This is awesome. I, I've literally got four pages of notes, so um, I, I'm 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 getting so much out of this. It's great. Yeah, awesome. Maybe Brian has another job as a professor that we don't know about. Training yeah. the street whenever bonus doesn't come in. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, don't get any ideas. We need you. <laughs> Uh, okay, switching on here, we're just continuing on the underwriting process. Brian, I just flipped the screen. Yep. The... Um, yeah, so just the next page is just about kind of like wrapping up and then summarizing the, the diligence findings in a, in a detailed memo. Again, we kind of said 35 to 40 pages, really depends. I mean, if, if, you're, if, if, if more analysis are warranted because it has a lot more risk, then you know, we can go above that. Um, if it's a little more simplified and easier business to understand, then it's probably less than 35 pages. But you know, it, this basically highlights the various um, detailed analysis um, that, that we've done right in the model pages. And again, it really kind of comes back to validating our investment thesis, um, improving out the key diligence areas, um, and then how we will look to mitigate risk. Um, and that's the summary, right? Um, and, and so once we have this memo wrapped up, we go into the investment committee to talk about the deal. Um, I would usually kick it off and give an overview about the transaction, the background, uh, what I think about the credit, um, what diligence we've done to get us comfortable. Um, but also, you know, um, while this is like a formal IC meeting, uh, you know, we do have team calls and then an ad hoc meetings in between. Um, you know, so if meaningful things do come up, then, then we definitely, you know, do discuss more as a team more often. So, um, but in terms of the IC, um, the formal IC committee, um, you know, I go in, I talk about the deal, you know, um, the community members ask questions and things like that. Um, but with that being said, um, you know, Melanie and Jerry are the, the community members um, who are making the final decisions. Um, but whenever you're not staffed on this specific deal that is being talked about in this meeting, um, you are asking questions and participating. That's sort of our model, um, and it, it has worked out well, um, as you can continue to learn, to think about, um, and then from the other side of the table, um, and try to pick holes on the thesis, 
um, and just bring other perspectives, right? Um, and also, I think you're being part of the discussions in the key decision making. Um, so that's sort of our model. Any any questions there? <clears throat> okay, not well. Go on to closing the deal. This is when you should be getting ready to pop the champagne. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But you know, yeah. Uh, once the deal is approved and then we won the mandate to move forward with the deal, then we go out to negotiate legal documentation. Um, and and I won't spend too much time on this because it does get pretty technical. Um, but just a few things that are always kind of thematic for us um, and things that we focus on are one EBITDA adjustments. Um, so adjustments are basically um, where companies um, want to normalize their earnings and usually end up being in a in, in an increase to their earnings. Um, I think Greg also uh, touched on this last time, but if a company, for example, had a one-time discretionary expense, you know, say the owner of the company had a private plane, right? But that expense uh, won't continue going forward uh, for the company because that owner will move on from his role um, and the company won't need to incur the expenses anymore. Then they're basically adding back that expense and then that's rolling up into the um, into their earnings or, or EBITDA, right? We just have to be really disciplined though around the, the adjustments and giving only appropriate adjustments um, and not the ones that are not well justified because you know that could mean you know that you're now dealing with made up earnings um, that is not really representative of the company's true free cash flow. So that's EBITDA adjustments and also on the covenant, um, given we are debt investors, um, we generally have covenants in all of our deals I think the most popular one is the leverage covenant. Uh, so that is basically the, the, the ratio of debt to EBITDA. Um, and what that allows us to do is if a company starts going sideways on performance and so your EBITDA starts declining, uh, that allows the lenders to kind of come back to the table uh, to renegotiate terms. So covenants is definitely an important aspect for us. And then lastly, cash leakage, another key concept for the lenders. And this is basically where the lenders are um, limiting the amount of cash that leaves the business without our permission. Um, and then we would sort of rather have the cash be reinvested into the business um, or pay down debt. So I think those are some of the key themes, uh, themes of the legal negotiation. And once that's wrapped up, you know, we go on to closing and funding the deal um, where again, you know, senior associates and, and VPs with spearhead that process as well. So. Melanie, what is the most egregious and or interesting adjustment that you have seen? <laughs> well, um, I would uh, not to get too long into a war story here, but um, I was Greg, working Greg, why are you coming in on video for that one? You got some stories there? <laughs> employee employee <laughs> bonuses. <laughs> I saw uh, one one time that just said um, loan to employee, but it was a excessive loan to an employee, like $550,000. And the employee was an administrative assistant. So we wondered why an administrative assistant was getting a $550,000 bonus. And I was working with a private equity firm on this deal. And so, they asked the seemingly obvious question to two male founders. And the one founder turned to the other founder and said, do you want to take that answer to that question? And you could tell there was like some whole story behind this. 
And so they said, we should probably discuss that over dinner. And as it turned out, one of the founders had an affair with the administrative assistant and got her pregnant. And that was like her hush money to like keep it quiet. So like, but don't worry, we're going to pay that off before we sell our business. <laughs> but they just did an EBITDA add back to, to it. Greg, the bar is high. No, no, I have, I have nothing like that. My, mine, is truly, <laughs> mine is truly when somebody like people have a bonus plan in place and they get paid that bonus. And then they say, oh, we, we, they just they, they did really well that year. So we paid them more. So we need to get an ad back for paying bonuses. Like you're not going to take money away from employees as the mm -hmm. next owner of the company, right? So the, the, the ad backs, you're trying to figure out, hey, is, is this an appropriate level of cash for me to service my debt? and grow the company. And the first thing you're not gonna do as a new owner is come in and go, hey guys, you guys are all making way too much money. And so we're gonna, we're gonna reduce your compensation. So that, that yeah. to me is the most egregious one. And, and $300,000 private chef, that was, that was a good one too. Oh, yeah, that's that, was a, that was a family, that was a family member though. So it was. <laughs> Man. I'm in the, all right. Um, but I think the, one of the interesting points here is this is where it becomes the art of financial modeling to understand where the questions are asked so that, I mean, this difference between, you know, Brian associate versus Brian senior associate VP and above, it's just, you know, just understanding that these little nuances, um, but cool guys. Awesome. Thanks for answering that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So now we are going to portfolio management, which is after closing the deal. Yeah, so on the portfolio management side, just quickly, um, this one, it's about continuing to stay on top of your um, accounts. And I think this is actually a little bit different from how the PE, the private equity um, sponsors operate versus how we operate, because private equity sponsors won't want to continue to sort of go on and look for opportunities. A lot of sort of active involvement, you know, as, as, the, as part of the board members. Um, and then and really being, you know, helping drive, you know, drive the growth of the company versus, for us, I mean, we definitely care about a lot of that and we want to grow the company. We want to help grow the company, um, but just lesser, lesser active involvement is, you know, sort of like a hands-on active involvement. But obviously we are tracking the financials performance. Um, you always want to know what's going on around the business to, you know, to react to things quickly. Um, again, whether that's, you know, responding to any incremental financings, amendments from the, from the company and the sponsors. Um, and just maintain that clear view of, of the, how the company is doing um, is very critical, um, again, for, for disciplined uh, portfolio management. And then um, we do take four seats um, in the majority of our deals, albeit I would say, um, you know, half our board observation seats uh, versus the other half our, um, you know, some form of voting seats. Um, and that allows to be a part of the strategic conversations and again, helping drive uh, the company. But as again, kind of coming back to the primarily as a, as a um, primary lender, um, you know, our role is kind of focused on, you know, supporting the sponsor, um, you know, being a good partner, right, to the sponsor um, and then helping the company grow, right? Um, so in that aspect, um, we do um, help people get connected to other industry contacts. Um, who may have certain connections. Um, we have former CEOs and executives of many different healthcare companies on our advisory board, um, and also through our um, other more formal and informal relationships. Um, and we're always looking to add value, right? We're always looking to add value for, for our partners 
And I think that's how we think about it. Uh, so this is my last slide. Um, Brian, here, Brian back, sorry, yeah. back, back on the other one, I think it's important to note here um, that, you know, there are different styles of debt investors, like distressed debt investors. And, you know, there's a different way to owning a company. Maybe just highlighting high level on that, of what that means and how it's different from others. Well, I mean, it, it really depends on what kind of um, investor you are. I mean, if you are a, a lender, but you have taken control over the company because your your company isn't going through a bankruptcy, then even though you're a lender, you know, you also sort of own the company, right? And you're trying to get your money back on, in that aspect. But for us, I mean, we are investing in, in performing and growing companies. Um, and a lot of times we're taking what's called a minority share, right? We're owning anywhere between... Uh, 10 to 20% of the company, that does give us a, a seat at the table and, and the voice, um, and it really help, um, you know, uh, help and, and become a partner to the sponsor and the company to grow the company. But we're not taking, uh, we're not taking a control and controlling share of the company like the private equity sponsors would, right? Um, whenever they do a leverage buyout, you know, they would take the majority ownership of the company. We don't do that. Yeah, and just on the point of the distress, Jordan, I mean, your point, we're we're investing in companies that are performing, have good cash flows. We're growth investors, meaning, you know, our upside is through growth of the company and not and also not through like uh, you know, doing financial engineering of the balance sheet. So not doing like highly levered deals or doing distressed deals where a company is in trouble. And we're coming in there and providing, you know, buying it at a low valuation and then turning it around and taking the benefit of that um, change of management or whatever needs to happen at the company to make it better. We're buying stable businesses and then helping them grow through acquisitions and organic growth. All right, thank you. Okay. Uh, um, okay, Brian? Yeah. Uh, so and, and on this page, I just wanted to highlight just a few skill sets that I think are important for senior associates um, and vice presidents. Um, and again, I'll, I'll layer in some some of the context as I'm walking this through. Um, the first one on the list is, is critical thinking. I think this one is hugely important, um, and I think it's a bit of a mindset. It, it's that you don't always take things um, at a face value and really try to figure out uh, what the truth is, and then just having an independent opinion. Um, one example that I would, I would bring up here is, I think Melanie also touched on this before, is when we receive the SIM from the investment bankers, you have to realize that that's a sales material, right? I mean, think about you're trying to sell a house um, and you've engaged a broker to put together a 10-page summary of your house. That's exactly what SIM is, but it instead you know, describes the company. So you have to be careful because, you know, that summary could be sounding a lot rosier uh, than what the reality is. And a lot of times you're putting a nice spin on things. Um, and I think your job is to really um, figure out what the reality is, the tr what the truth is, um, you know, um, versus, you know, what, what people are telling you and then their narratives, right? Um, and then that's like, how has the company done in the past? Um, how are they doing now? Um, where do you think they'll go in the future? Um, and you should collect enough data points, um, but be the, you should be the one that, that draws your own conclusion, right? And the critical thinking skill sets, this, this differentiates like 
hugely, like an analyst, an analyst and associate level. Like some analysts and associates are very good at this. They know how to think critically, um, you know, make up your make up their own mind, have their own views and speak up about it versus some are not. And that just draws a huge distinction between the two. So I think that's really important. And then similarly, but this is more about how you make decisions. Um, and I think um, in investing, you make decisions based on analysis, right? I mean, whether that's based on certain sets of data um, or themes in the industry where you might not necessarily have the data, um, it's about driving the conclusion based on thorough analysis. Um, but with that, I think it's also important to stay open-minded because you'll always get new information um, and things change very quickly in this world, right? Um, and I think if you have sometimes too much conviction about something that you're not letting yourself into other possible new information, um, and that could be dangerous because, you know, that creates, um, that creates blind spots, right? Um, so you should certainly know how to draw conclusions um, and make decisions quickly, uh, but you should be also flexible um, that you can kind of adjust to new info as well. Uh, the next one, yeah, diligent Brian, detail. Brian, yeah. Brian, if, if I can hop in real quick there. Uh, obviously, or I, I imagine that it's highly quantitative analytical decision making, but it also seems like there's a lot of room for like kind of qualitative analysis of what's going on as well. Especially when, you know, like when you're talking about, you know, getting getting towards the end game and looking at cash leakages and things like that. Um, as you're going through through here, like how, how do you see the balance or do you have any examples of where like one might have overridden the other um, as you're going through a decision making process? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a great point. Um, I mean, one aspect of it is I think you always have to balance the, the high level um, high-level things versus, you know, very company-specific. Um, so having a view on, 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 on an industry, having a thematic view on the industry is very important, right? What's, knowing what's going on with the industry, um, that's more like qualitative stuff. And you may not always, you're not going to always have the, all the data points uh, behind the industry, but just think about, call it the oil industry or, or the printing business, right? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of companies, you know, that, you know, were performing fine. And then if you look into the specific data points, they all look great. But if you take a step back and look at the bigger picture issues, the, the industry was going down south, right? So like, that's something that you would always have to balance, like looking at the bigger picture. And I think I also kind of pointed out here, looking at the bigger picture, taking a step back versus also kind of doing your analysis, you know, based on the data, right? Does that, that, make that makes it, yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense is that bigger picture qualitative understanding of what is going on here, but you also have to have the kind of like micro quantitative like things are lining up. Um, it, that, that makes a ton of sense. And Tyler, I think um, Greg touched on this when he did his case study too, but at the end of the day, you can run all the models you want. You can do all the financial analysis you want we're backing people. So we can't overstate the um, importance of strong management teams. And strong isn't just um, skills on a piece of paper. It's also to those softer skills of transparency and trust. And um, you know, do you think that if an issue does arise that that CEO or CFO is going to call you and chat about that, you know, developing that level of connection and partnership with the management teams is so critical. If I think about 
almost all of the deals that I know of that went left, it's because something happened with management. And so, you know, really digging in and making sure you understand who you're backing. It's such a people business because people at the end of the day are, are going to be, you know, making the company do what you want it to do. And if you have an issue with the management team, that can tank a deal and totally change any model that you've tried to create in Excel. Um, okay, Brian, go on. Um, yeah, just to, going on to the next point, the diligent and detail oriented. I mean, that, that almost kind of goes without saying. Uh, the diligence process takes a lot of work, um, a lot of synthesizing data and information, asking a number of questions, clarifying, concluding, um, and putting that into an explainable story, right? It's, it's a laborious process, uh, but definitely an intellectually stimulating one. Um, so you have to be wanting to roll up your sleeves uh, to dig in. But again, as I mentioned before, it's, it's very important to also maintain your perspectives. Um, you know, balance with, with bigger picture issues. Take a, take a step back and balance with bigger picture issues. Um, you know, sometimes we get so hung up on, on very specific detail that you're just kind of missing out on, you know, what's going on with the industry. Do we like the management team like Mel just talked about and things like that. Um, and then the next point is, you know, manage projects and then communicate effectively, uh, both with internal teams as well as the external customers. Um, always know how to tell a story with data. I think that's very important skill in investing um, and obviously communicate with conviction. Um, and then lastly, um, as Melanie touched on again, develop and build industry network and relationships. I mean, they can be a great resource um, if you want to go ask some questions, get thoughts, or could be a good deal, uh, you know, source for a, a deal flows in the future as well, right? Um, and as we know, this is a reputation heavy business. Um, and people really drive the success of the business. So being able to work with others um, and have good relationships, I think, are definitely critical. Um, Melanie, did I did I miss anything else? I mean, this is obviously coming from a senior associate VP myself, but also kind of coming from Melanie, would love to you know hear your thoughts as well. No, I I appreciate that. I think um, uh, just a, a few quick points on this point too, and we we only have one other slide, which is to from HA's point of view, how she thinks about the internship um, side of things. But a few uh, points I just want to touch on here. Um, when you guys are coming into this role, um, you know, when you think about, particularly if you're at a firm that is, if you're at a private equity firm, think about who your peers are at lending sources or um, investment banks, whoever your peers would be reaching out to them and developing relationship with your direct peers is really critical for a reason I'll mention in a moment. For Brian at our firm, having him reach out to his peers at private equity firms, investment banks, and such is also important. The reason why I say that is when I started my career, you know, I used to think like, oh, I'm an associate. I'm going to call the partner at, you know, KKR. That person's going to take my call and start showing me deals. And of course, like that person's never calling me back as an associate at a firm. So then it occurred to me that if I create relationships with my peers, hopefully over the years as I'm growing up in the industry, they're also growing up. And that's been hugely successful. I mean, I have relationships from people that I met right when I entered the career who are now leading firms or they were you know, moved up to partner or managing partner at their firms and have spun off and created their own firm. 
you know, all of these people, um, if you connect the dots to those people are gonna either stay at their firm and rise up or go elsewhere and rise up. So Brian and I've been working a lot with, um, and me sitting in my world, working with Brian on a number of deals. I encourage him to develop those relationships. So deals that like this deal that we just walked through together, gotten very close with the VP and the associate at that private equity firm. They talk all the time. They interact, exchange emails, call one another. They're developing their own relationship. And then of course I have my relationship with them. And then I have my relationship with the partner at that firm as well. But it's really important for me um, to make sure that I help him foster those relationships. So as he advances in his career, he can also uh, develop those relationships and then also generate deal flow because those guys are also men or women are have the opportunity to also have a say in who they should go to for financing solutions. And so hopefully that connection they make with Brian continues to push deal flow our way. Um, the other thing that Brian, um, I think touched on a little bit here, but what I really appreciate about Brian is he does his own independent research. So he might see something in a SIM um, or like that deal that we worked on that had Louisiana Medicaid exposure. He didn't just take what we heard he was on Louisiana's state website learning about Medicaid in Louisiana. He was being very proactive to think outside of the box and bring material to the deal process that wasn't actually presented to us, whether it's validating what we've seen or provide additional information. And even back to the pipeline report, um, which is, a, is seems like a simple thing, but kind of gets lost in the day-to-day -day activity. He actually went back and said, oh, Melanie, I was thinking about these last three deals that we worked on together. And here's the result of what happened. One didn't get sold to who we thought it was going to get sold to. These two, here's who actually did their financing. And this is what the deal looked like. By doing a simple Google search around the name of the company to figure out what happened. And now him and HR are going to do that for our entire look back of our portfolio. But he's very proactive. Um, and he always is raising his hand um, to, to do more, which... Um, I just love that about him, his level of proactiveness and his level of, um, you know, going above and beyond to validating or provide additional information that's not just right on the surface. Which is why now he's promoted to be. <laughs> <laughs> now I just heard so, your rationale, Mel. I appreciate that. No, no problem. So just wanted to share some of that with you guys as you think about coming into these roles and how, uh, you know, you can be helpful to the people that you're working with. And maybe what I will do is turn this to the next slide. And last but not least, uh, Aisha, you've been listening all along the way uh, so intently and quietly. Uh, maybe you guys, you have some things to add based off of what we presented. Um, yeah you can touch into what you've put together here in terms of your observations around working with us and some tips for um, the folks as they think about taking on internship roles. Yeah, yeah, I will try to make this quick, uh, but these are just few things that help me structure an online internship and keep myself accountable. And like firstly, like set specific goals. What do you want to learn in this few months? And for me, this was bimodal, as Tyler also pointed out. First, like quality analysis skills. Since my undergrad career was not really finance focused, like I felt like I had to gain some critical thinking skills uh, in the scope of finance. And then more technical analytical goal where like learn more about data analysis and profit projection. 
and then have a learning plan with different objectives. I borrowed this framework of four different buckets from one of my advisors, and I really like that, like knowledge, vision, practical skills, and personal management. And these are not always be giving to you. Sometimes you have to do extra research. You have to set up specific meetings to achieve these goals. And then know your weaknesses and find people and resources that can help you to improve. And I think this is especially important if this is your first time interning in a specific company or in a specific industry. And like, as a lot of people mentioned, like take Excel classes, SQL classes, learn more about Salesforce, like identify what you need to like, what technical skills you need to gain. Um, but also know your strengths and be vocal about how you can be a valuable asset, even if you're an intern. For me, I think I am, I think I'm very tech savvy. So I offer help whenever I think I can be efficient while solving a tech related problem. And like follow the news, follow the markets and like read every document that you can have, you have access to. Like do your, do your research as Melanie said, in certain industries, like you can get away with the bare minimum info, but finance is not one of them. You have to do a very extensive research to understand. And then I found this last point to be especially valuable for an online internship. Um, be an active participant and join all of the calls and meetings if you can make it. And ask questions and don't be afraid to set one-on-one -on -one meetings, even if your manager is not working with that team. Uh, you can still learn a lot, a lot from like people working with different teams, working on different projects. And create checkpoints. Uh, and schedule follow-up calls. This is mostly to keep you keep yourself accountable. And I think it's important in finance because deal analysis is time sensitive and the process will be very fast paced. So try not to get lost. And like lastly, communication, because I feel like as for any other industry, like timely responses are fundamental for being efficient. Yeah, and I would just say, uh, Ishii does a great job of this too. When we were implementing Salesforce, we had to put in all of our contacts and I was literally like doing that manually. And I told her, hey, we have this project, we have to input all of this manual. And I thought her head was gonna explode, like there has to be a better way. And she reached out and said, Melanie, listen, give me access to these, you know, custom, I don't even know what you call them, wizards or something within Salesforce. She's like, I can, I can do this in no time. And I'm like, how did she even know that? She's like, I was doing research around how to do this and I just, found how to how to do this and now like I just need these tools and now I can do it and she did it so quickly so I was telling her I love having somebody like her who is tech savvy around to say oh this is what you were going to do no I can do this you know so much easier and faster than how you were thinking about that and and so that's been great and working with her and she's also very uh inquisitive so if she's listening to an investment committee which she participates in all of that she'll follow up and say, okay, I was understanding that, but I'm not really understanding that. Or why did you guys do that? And I really appreciate that about her, that she'll take notes and, and follow up and, and ask those questions and um, show us that she has an interest in, do, interest in doing that. And then her and Brian have been working together on a number of things to get her up to speed with some of the nuances of what we do as well. I think one of the big takeaways here is that, you know, you being familiar with understanding Excel and PowerPoint inside and out is the difference between going home at 9 p.m. versus 2 a.m. and when you're at the last start part of a deal. And um, I really like that mentality of like, just like there has to be a better way to do something if you're looking at a thousand lines of data 
And I'm completely guilty of doing this for the past 10 years and not like learning how to do it a better way. <laughs> like, oh, I'm gonna manually do this on the Excel sheet, why not? It's a good use of time. Um, but I, the other takeaway here, or one of the other takeaways is just the learning plan. It's such a good idea. Lay out your learning plan for financial modeling, for explaining what is that credit process that we just went through? Or what is the M&A process? You can look at that book, Investment Banking. I think it's chapter seven or eight, and I put it in the Slack channel. Um, I love that idea of a learning plan. Mm -hmm. So that concludes our formal part of our presentation. I know we went <laughs> extra long. Hopefully that was uh, helpful for you and happy to answer any follow-on questions.